Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. There are many very, very well-established scholars now in China who take a new left position. They believe that marketization is moving too quickly and thus widening that gap of socioeconomic inequality. So they're using Marxism to criticize the state, but not in a way that makes it seem like the state is veering off course. If we're really getting towards a decisive victory in Xiao Kang society in all respects, then what's going to happen after that? Are we really going to move away from marketization? Are we really going to take money away from these rich Alibaba billionaires and move them back to the people? In this episode, building a perfect Chinese society, the utopian ideals and rhetoric of China's Communist Party. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. The creation of a near-perfect society where everyone benefits has been the dream of many throughout history. In the late 19th century, utopian visions emerged with a socialist political complexion, with Marxist notions of a workers' paradise. The discontent of the proletariat would lead to the overthrow of the capitalists, followed by a dictatorship of the proletariat, which would pave the way for a society with equal justice and fairness for all. In 20th century China, Mao Zedong and members of the Chinese Communist Party adopted some of Marxist concepts, but they didn't depend on Western thought alone in pursuit of their ideals. Indeed, the CCP's view of perfect social order has roots in the works of Confucius, the Chinese philosopher who preceded Marx by more than two millennia. The road to a Chinese utopia has been anything but easy. So, after the disasters of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, has the Chinese Communist Party abandoned their original goal of an ideal society? Are the capitalism-friendly economic reforms that were initiated by Deng Xiaoping a permanent replacement for Maoist communism? Or does the CCP, under current leader Xi Jinping, view their current path as a necessary detour on the road to some version of Maoist perfection. To examine notions of Chinese utopias, past, present and future, we're joined by two China historians from the University of Melbourne, Dr Craig Smith from Asia Institute and Dr Matt Galway, who's based at the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies. Welcome back to Ear to Asia, Craig, and welcome, Matt. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Ali. Thank you so much. Let's start by looking at the role the concept of a utopian society plays in today's China. It may sound vague, Craig, but where does it sit? Well, I don't think that the Communist Party has tried to drop this goal of working towards a utopia at all. I mean, of course, they are still the Communist Party, so one of the most important elements of their legitimacy is this route to a communist utopia. Of course, in China, they call this utopia datong. So as you said earlier, the term, at least in the concept, come from a Confucian background. But the Communist Party, to maintain this legitimacy, really needs to figure out where we are on this path and what stages we need to go through to proceed through to get to this utopia. In many ways, can you argue that datong is the, the raison d'etre of the Communist Party. It is there to lead the people to this better place. Well, I'd certainly say so. Um, I mean, 
the concepts of like Shao Kang and Datong were kind of bridges for Mao to engage with Marxian theory when he was a student. And in much of his rhetoric and much of the kind of raison d'etre of the party or the modus vivendi, it's this idea of progressing through stages on towards a great communist society. Mao even used the term in his writings, uh, Datong, uh, in reference to progressing to communist society. But, but you mentioned Shao Kang. Now explain yeah. to us what Shao Kang is. So essentially, Shao Kang is a more prosperous society. I've always kind of viewed it within the communist a party's view as kind of a bridge or a stand-in for the steps towards Datong. Obviously, they don't make explicit references to it during Mao's time, but nowadays it's kind of moved in and replaced it since Deng Xiaoping brought it up explicitly in 1979. It's become kind of this idea of a more prosperous society. Now, more prosperous for whom is the big question that I'm sure we'll entertain today. Craig, do you agree that it's a replacement? Is it a replacement or is it part of a path? It's down to discourse. I mean, really, the Communist Party needs to use these terms and say we're, we're going towards this ideal. But it's an ideal. And just like any sort of ideal, any sort of utopia, it's not really about the utopia. It's about how you get there. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about Datong, we're, we're actually talking about now and what we're doing and why we're doing it. So in that respect it's important as a justification for what's done today. And let me ask you, I mean, utopia, the literal definition, no place, Mm. it's not defined, it's fictional. In Chinese society, is Datong defined? Well, yes and no. Uh, So the original idea of Datong comes from a Confucian classic, right? But there's only one paragraph on Datong, because how much do you really need to describe the utopia? You know, there are no borders, there are no walls, there's no poverty, everything's wonderful. At least in the classical sense, it wasn't really well-defined. It wasn't defined until the late 19th century at the earliest, at which point Kang Youwei, uh, one of the most important reformers of the late Qing dynasty, wrote a book about it. The book was called Datong Chu, the book of Datong, or the Great Unity. And then he really gets into what exactly this future utopia is going to look like. Now, that utopia might not exactly be the same as the utopia that the Chinese Communist Party envisioned, but they have taken his terminology and his use of the the path to Datong as their own teleology. So it hasn't really replaced Marxist thought. It's just given it a kind of terminology to use. And a terminology, I mean, it's interesting, if you, if you look at uh, Xi Jinping and the number of times that he's mentioned Shao Kang in, mm-hmm. in recent speeches, but it's not in any way, as you've just said, a, a purely communist concept. And in fact, it goes all the way back to the Book of Rights. That's right. So the Book of Rights, it was uh, actually compiled in the Han Dynasty. So about 500 years after Confucius, the Han Dynasty started about 200 years BC and went to 200 years AD. And You probably have heard that in the Qin dynasty, which was right before the Han dynasty, Qin Shi Huangdi, the first great emperor of China, he was really against Confucius and he burned all the Confucius books. So the Book of Rights was a compilation of what people could find, what they remembered. Uh, Everything was brought together. So we attribute the idea of Datong to Confucius, but it was only hundreds of years after his death that this was written down as something that he said. Uh, and at the same time, you have one paragraph on Datong, and then you have one paragraph on Shao Kang. And then we get to Mao Zedong. Mm-hmm. Matt, how was his process, or what was his process, of taking Datong and Shao Kang? 
Well, I guess in the in the 19 teens, when Mao is living in Beijing and involved in a lot of these radical iconoclastic circles, such as like the New Culture Movement and the May Fourth Movement, uh, he decried. Confucius and Confucianism, yet it was part of his orbit. He was immersed in these classics as a student, even though he had a rural upbringing. He had the path towards or social mobility, and it was inseparable very much from his education. So as he engages with these radical ideas from outside, we, I guess what we would call radical Western thought, uh, such as Marxism, these concepts allow him to engage with ideas of like a communist utopia with a local language or local vocabulary and conceptual terrain to interpret them. And that language provided him and his uh, loyalists, his uh, people who would in the 1940s become his immediate intellectual thrust, uh, they're able to mobilize this vocabulary to recruit people into the party. Now, do we know specifically whether people you know, gravitate to the parties purely on this or was it because they were speaking to concrete issues on the ground? Uh, that's for another time. But essentially, these terms like datong specifically allow us to kind of Imagine how Mao envisioned communist society taking place in China. And how different was Mao's vision from Marx's vision? Well, I'd say that to talk about Mao in a singularity, is it's just problematic because there are so many Maos within the, just the lifespan as his chairmanship of the party. I'd say, like, as a theorist, Mao's Marxism we have to take seriously, and we should take it seriously because he wasn't, in many respects, a true Marxist-Leninist. Um, now, looking at how he implements it, this is where we can kind of get into Mao's utopianism or the, the utopianism that kind of underpins Mao Zedong thought, Mao Zedong Sisyang, is that in the pursuit of implementing his ideas, his Marxism, uh, we get essentially some errors, whether it's the Chinese Communist Party adhering too closely to the Soviet model which they deviate from. Uh, and then it's things like the Great Leap Forward, where it's attempts to jump ahead of stages of socialist development, as if to kind of jump towards a red datong, so to speak. And then, of course, we have the Cultural Revolution, where Mao Zedong thought becomes iconoclastic itself and becomes uh, zealotry and becomes even more radical than before, and then it becomes exported. But to what extent did Mao enunciate right about stages, about the path, about mm. the process that he would take to his utopia? Pretty much in much of his, what we call the Yan'an canon, much of his, his signature works like uh, On Practice, On New Democracy, uh, On Contradiction, where it was rhetorically always by stages, that there was this idea that China had to go through stages and at each stage they needed to take particular attention to achieving certain goals. And that single-step socialism is, is not the way to go or single-step datong is not the way to go. Uh, and this is something he argued for much of his life. And then when China is in power, they realize there is this disconnect. Now we have power, we have to implement these ideas. It's a difference between pursuing power and actually exercising it. So it is during that stage where they're trying things out and it transforms in many ways. And of course, there are successes and there are failures. And the failures are catastrophic, as we know. So I think in, in looking at how uh, the implementation phase takes shape, we're talking about stages both of Mao's thinking and in China's development towards the communist society that Mao believed China could obtain within his lifetime, which they, of course, did not. So indeed, after the death of Mao Craig, what, what happened to his version of utopia? And, and what happened to his version of stages with so many 
obvious and recognised disasters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I might disagree with Matt a little bit here that I think Mao actually tried to skip quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And from the, the Confucian teleology... And that was essentially the problem, wasn't it? That's right. Mm-hmm. And so um, that, that's how things fell apart. But that step that, he's, that he wanted to skip was quite huge. So Deng Xiaoping, he said in the late 1970s, he said, well, we got to jump back. He did not want to use the words capitalism, of course. He's not going to say China's going to become capitalist and then we're going to become socialist. So he said, we're going to have socialism with Chinese characteristics. We're going to employ a path that goes first to Xiao Kang and then to Datong. So what he was able to do there in the late 1970s and early 80s was avoid any sort of political talk that he couldn't afford to do. It was actually a really smart move. There's a very famous theorist now called Wang Hui. He's one of the most popular new left theorists in mainland China. And he calls this depoliticization of politics. And he brings up a few terms that were used to this end. There's uh, develop. There's modernization and there's Xiao Kang. One of the great things about Xiao Kang is Deng could talk about opening the markets, really what were capitalist reforms, without using any of the traditional capitalist terminology. He was able to use Chinese terminology and say this is a real Chinese path that we've got towards utopia. Would you agree with that? Regarding Deng Xiaoping? Uh, yeah, I think I think that's kind of the hallmark of his success. But what about in terms of Deng and how he was distinguishing himself from Mao? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Deng Xiaoping's kind of great success in this regard is, is to acknowledge the importance of Mao's contributions, but also to distance himself from it and to say, look, we've made mistakes, but we mustn't, you know, kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think this is kind of a characteristic of every leader subsequent uh, Mao is to say, okay, there's value in that, but we made mistakes and we need to go forward. And Deng Xiaoping really kind of pivoting away from the relentless pursuit of Datong and saying that, you know, we can still pursue Datong, but let's look at Xiaokang and let's look at having a moderately prosperous society. How do we do that? Socialism with Chinese characteristics. What are the Chinese characteristics? Marketization. So so much more than skipping stages like Mao, he was more about let's focus on the stages. This capitalist society is just Mm -hmm. a brief stopover on the path to eternal prosperity. That's right. I mean, you can even say that this goes back to ideas of classical Marxism because Marx said, you know, you go through capitalism, then you get to socialism. And of course, Deng was in agreement with that. And he said, we messed up in the 50s and 60s and we're going to go back and, and do this the right way. And for Deng, was it a successful form of rhetoric? I mean, what what are the challenges with that sort of shift in conversation, if you like, at a time of such rapid change? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, there have always been a lot of people that are very disappointed with what Deng Xiaoping has done. Uh, That said, I would say the vast majority of Chinese people are very happy with what he's done and see him as a fantastic leader. But if you look at it from um, a Marxist perspective, it is kind of uh, dropping the revolution, And so a lot of people were very critical of that. I mean, calling it the depoliticization of politics, that's not trying to complement it. I mean, you could say that it's a smart way of doing things, but uh, from uh, the left perspective, it wasn't the, the correct way of doing things. Matt, there's actually been a rejuvenation of Marxism, hasn't there, in China right now? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of in two forms. I mean, it's in multiple forms, but the two big ones are the state Marxism that you see with Xi Jinping, where it's these homages to Marx, but 
when it comes to party practice, the elimination of all the important things that made the China's Communist Party uh, so Marxist back in Mao's heyday, like self-criticism and checks and balances to keep from corruption from running rampant. Now, Xi Jinping, of course, is undergoing that major anti-corruption campaign himself. But before him, we could see that corruption was rampant. And this is what brings in the Marxist society at Beijing University, also called uh, Peking University. Uh, the, the students who are, are just sick and tired of the deteriorating conditions of workers and have kind of just grown absolutely fed up with poor uh, protection of workers' rights and the conditions of their safety have gone in to support them. So as early as July this past year, uh, many of these Marxist society members went and, and stood in support kind of arm in arm with these labor activists and, and workers and said, enough's enough. Uh, and this is all, again, tied to this rampant corruption that they believe is still pervasive within the Chinese Communist Party. And also the moving away from caring about workers. Of course, these students now are, are essentially using the Marxism-Leninism, which is at the core basis of the Communist Party, as a tool to criticize the Communist Party itself. And this shows the complexity of the challenges that face the party when they use this sort of rhetoric to give themselves legitimacy. Mm. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by China scholars Dr Craig Smith and Dr Matthew Galway. We're talking about Chinese visions of and work towards a utopian society. I want to look at that, um, the challenges for the party in uh, this renewal of, of, of focus on Marxism. But first of all, if we look more at Xi Jinping and, and his Chinese dream, if you like. He refers to two centenary goals. So there's Shao Kang, or a, a moderately literal translation, moderately well-off society by 2021. And that's the 10th anniversary of the party. And then there's the modernisation target of China becoming a completely developed country by 20. 49, which of course is the 100th anniversary of the People's Republic. Craig, what does that actually mean in practice, these twin centenary goals? Well, of course, uh, to a great extent, it's just rhetoric, but... Um, but he put a date on it. That's right. Well, uh, first off, the date of, uh, of achieving Xiao Kang, that and eliminating poverty, that was actually set by Jiang Zemin back in 2002. So this isn't uh, something new that Xi Jinping has just come up with. This has been going on for quite a long time. And Jiang said it's going to be Quan Xiao Kang. So that means Xiao Kang in all respects. So it's more about um, this goal, which was originally 2020. And now uh, a lot of people are saying, uh, well, Xi Jinping, is, as, as well as said, it's to make sure things are done by the 100th anniversary of the party. So 2021. But what will that look like? And how does that fit with the growing inequality? Actually, the inequality is a big part of it. So that is one thing that they say they're going to relieve. It's the elimination of poverty by 2020 or now 2021. They're running out of time, aren't they? They are. But uh, to be fair, the elimination of poverty in the countryside, in uh, minority areas, in some ways has been very successful. I mean, to say that you can eliminate poverty entirely might be a little bit optimistic, especially within another year or two. But certainly the progress is fantastic in this respect, and that has to be respected. Also, it's important that Xi Jinping puts himself on this path that was set up by the people before him. And that's and kind claims of what credit. he's doing. And claims credit. Yeah, I mean, the important thing is, is during his era, 
this is going to be a success. And I, we can guarantee he's going to call it a success no matter what. Well, well, he has already, really. I mean, he's repeatedly declared a decisive victory in obtaining a, a Shao Kung society. Does mm-hmm. that sort of rhetoric fall on welcome ears? Because you can think short term, but if you also, as you've just pointed out, Craig, if you think back to what's been achieved in the last 40 years, it is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And I mean, what China's done is fantastic. And we we have to keep coming back to that. Also, when he says it's a victory, he says a victory of Shao Kang society, but not yet a victory of Shao Kang in all respects. That's the one that's going to come in a few years. Of course, Shao Kang, what kind of victory is the question. I mean, is this a real victory in terms of the path towards communist utopia? Well, if you go back and look at what Shao Kang actually really means, it's a time of selfishness. It's a time in which people are doing things for their own private gain or the gain of their family. So Confucius was actually quite down on Shao Kang. It wasn't really a good period. It was a period in which you had to build walls, in a period in which you had to have moats, in which you have have to have very strict laws to control the people. The goal is to not need those laws, is to not need those walls, is to not need to have private ownership. And that's really, really far off. So, yeah, a victory, but this is a victory in in a step. Well, in a big step, I suppose, but uh, it's still not a, a great place to be. Can we look at that, uh, what we mentioned before, the resurgence of Marxism in China? Can we put that up against the Shao Kang uh, rhetoric as well? Because we, we talked about the resurgence, but uh, and you talked about the Marxist society at Beijing University, but in actual fact, six months ago, together with those protests, it was shut down. Um, so on the one hand, you've got the Marxist society shut down. On the other, you've got the government, well, it's essentially a propaganda campaign. It's got this cartoon series which you can watch. It's highly entertaining. Apparently there's been some concern that all the key actors in the cartoon series about the history of Marxists are too good looking to be true. But um, clearly there's a reason for this. So how do you balance that new focus on Marxism and the shutting down of the Marxist society? Well, I think the way to do it or the way that it's it's getting done right now in China is through the voices of many public intellectuals uh, where you have a fine line that you have to tread naturally because you don't want to come off as being overly subversive against the state. But there are many uh, very, very well-established scholars who take a new left position. They believe that marketization is moving too quickly and thus widening that gap of socioeconomic inequality. So they're using Marxism, like the Marxist society in, in many respects, to criticize the state, but not in a way that makes it seem like the state is is veering off course. Uh, so, yeah, so. so it's not a criticism of the stages per se. It's the speed with which the stages are being pursued. Precisely. It's returning the focus to those disadvantaged groups like workers and farmers, etc., and saying, look at where we're at and look at the obscene wealth that is emerging in the coastal cities and elsewhere, where you have a concentration of a lot of wealth in very, very small hands. And and I, I think their argument is, is that more marketization isn't going to make the situation better. It's going to make it worse. And it's going to create a socioeconomic inequality that will be almost an obstacle over which they can't across. And some of these voices, uh, Craig has already mentioned Wang Hui, have presented some ideas with which we can engage in looking at how to use Marxism, how to mobilize Marxism in a way where you can be critical of the state's pursuit, its economic policy and programs, while not necessarily saying, you know, down with Xi Jinping. 
But given that movement and that conversation is so prominent now in China, doesn't that make the government's campaign to focus on on Marx, the cartoon series and others, doesn't that make it a very dangerous game? (laughs) I mean, how do you control something once you've unleashed it? Well, I think, like I was saying, the current Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping is very much uh, adhering to the state Marxism, where it's about speaking to the theory of legitimation, speaking to their modus operandi and the whole reason they exist as a communist party, but not actually adhering to the actual class struggle, for instance, as one of these conceptual terrains on which Marxism makes so centric. I think it's picking and choosing those elements to legitimate, ritualize, and institutionalize the party and say, we are the benevolent party that's running and doing our thing and we're looking out for you uh, without actually saying class struggle go after the billionaires, et cetera. So absolutely, yes. I mean, that's what's so great about the Marxist society and what's such a a damn shame about Beijing University moving to close it down and the state kind of having the role in that is that these students are doing exactly what they should be doing. What they'd be encouraged to do in in some ways as well. Exactly, exactly. So it it becomes like this this mindset where it's like these students who would be held up as moral and theoretical exemplars in Mao's time are now looked at as as almost uh, dissidents, anti-statists, problems, terrorists, you know, the bad things. And Craig, that's a problem for the authorities, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, Ali. And one of the ways that they deal with this is by looking back to Marx and actually seeing him as somebody who recognized that there were different methods that you had to use in different times. So the class struggle that was so important in the 19th and 20th century might not be what's relevant today. Now, for somebody who reads Marx and likes Marx, you're going to say, what? But you, you can't do away with these elements of Marxism. But for the the Leninist party that's in power today in China, they're saying, well, you know, trust the vanguard, trust the party, and we will resolve these issues. And in some ways, a true reading of Marx would support that. Trust the party, trust the, the leadership to guide you through. Definitely, especially after you get into early 20th century Marxism and Leninism, then definitely it's all about the party and supporting the party. From that respect, yeah, what the CCP is doing is is correct. Do you see the focus on Marxism and and things like this government cartoon series, do you actually see it as a sign of weakness? Why does the government need to do this? I think that the government still needs to control the discourse. So when you look at creating all this kind of propaganda to support the state, but at the same time controlling the students, arresting the students, uh, locking down labor unions, things like that. Yeah, that can be seen as a sign of weakness, that they're struggling to maintain authority. I mean, to be honest, I think that they're very good at this, and I think that they can keep doing it for a long time. And I think that they can keep building their legitimacy through this kind of discourse. But they are losing a lot of people on the left in China. I mean, this cartoon is a great example of it. I I watched the first episode. It's just come out. You can watch it now on YouTube. But I just watched the first one. And I can tell you that it looks like Marx's ideas of class struggle were all based on his love for a girl. So <laughs> yes, there's a lot about his relationship with his wife and his seven That's children, right. as I understand yeah. it. And, and Matt, do you, do you agree with what, what Craig's been saying? I mean, the, the Chinese uh, uh, leadership has proven themselves to be very good at this, not, not in just in recent times, over a, a long period. 
Well, certainly when Craig mentioned the Leninist Party in China, it brings to mind the fact that, yes, absolutely, they did this kind of two-part phenomenon of the Leninist Party in China, which is uh, that of having this very kind of rational bureaucratic feature, which is very much rooted in, in these authority traditions, and then one that is always fixated on the party, the impersonal party. The thing is, is that in China, it takes on the personal aspect under Mao and in subsequent generations after him. So it's this idea of, you know, everybody's putting their, their stamp on the thought of the party in the direction. You've got Mao Zedong thought. Uh, Deng Xiaoping chimes in. Uh, and then eventually you have Xi Jinping thought with socialism on Chinese characteristics. And now he's president for life. So it's, it's this ongoing kind of evolution of it and this attempt to move away from the more radical or class struggle elements of Marxism and take those elements that, again, speak to legitimating and institutionalizing and ritualizing the party as the main apparatus. Do the Chinese people, do they believe in Xiao Kang as a path to Datong? Do they believe in Datong? I mean, how does the rhetoric fall with the common man? I mean, does anybody really believe in utopia? I think that people believe that we're working towards something much better. That, yes, I think a lot of people do. But of course, the people that believe that the party is doing the right thing and that uh, we are marching towards this utopia those people are the people who have benefited a lot from what's going on. The people who haven't benefited, of course, they don't see it in the same way. They don't see that we're working towards some sort of datong. This is for the greater masses who really have benefited quite a lot in the last 20 or 30 years. They also are often the ones who in surveys show approval for the new social credit system as well. Can you read anything about the approval for that system internally in China and this move towards a a better way, a better life? Well, yeah, actually, when I look back and read the the Book of Rights and that chapter on Xiao Kang, of course, they didn't have a social credit system and they didn't have facial recognition back then. But they were building walls and they were having all these strict laws. And, you know, it was it was a very strict society. Of course, Xiao Kang is supposed to be in the past as well as in the future. Right. I think that from that perspective, it makes sense. You know, people will say, well, this is the way we need to go through if we really want things to get better. That makes sense to people. And I think it makes sense looking back to ancient Confucianism. It makes sense if you look at Marxism and, you know, even some liberals today. Every time there's a discussion about putting up video cameras anywhere, we have these same discussions, but it'll make us safer. In some ways, this is kind of a universal thing that we have this kind of dialogue. I can understand why people say the social credit system is good. But there's going to be a lot of people who lose out. Matt, you're nodding. Well, it's just an agreement. I mean, this idea that it's new is it's just the mode in which it's taking shape is new because the technology is new. But again, returning back to the party is ultimate. Saying implementing a social credit system is in tandem with this idea of the party as guiding society. And that, of course, has its roots also in Marxism. And you can even say in Confucian with the idea of the one leader of benevolence and and making virtuous decisions and, and whatever. But I agree with Craig in that it's not going to be a shakong for all. It's going to be very selective in who it benefits. And there are going to be particular groups uh, that will be uh, on the outside looking in when it comes to the benefits of social credit. And can you see, looking well ahead, can you see those particular groups turning into anything that poses a real threat? Probably not, if I'm honest. I, I think that the Communist Party is very secure. Of course, there will be threats. 
and they will manage these threats one by one, just as they did with the Marxist society at Peking University last year. Sorry, Same. that sounds very negative. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's also like, I think, a pragmatic negativity. It's mm-hmm. it's true. It's the pervasiveness of this party in all aspects, whether it's in the far reaches of the Chinese borderlands or elsewhere. It's everywhere. And I think that's, again, another check towards the social credit system is that it's because the state is, is so pervasive, because the party is so fluid in, in everyday life. It's not really a huge leap. It's just saying, hey, we've got technology. Let's mobilize it towards, again, our pursuit of a moderately prosperous society in which people are behaving for the public good and et cetera. And eventually Datong. <laughs> well, I, I think the question there is, if we're really getting towards a decisive victory in Xiao Kang society in all respects in the next year or two, then what's going to happen after that? Are we really going to move away from marketization? Are we really going to take money away from these rich Alibaba billionaires and move them back to the people? That's going to be the real question. Is Xi Jinping, is he really going to want to move beyond Xiao Kang? That's going to be really difficult because how can he lose the support of all those rich, wealthy Chinese? He's in a real predicament now. At the same time, though, of course, uh, post Xiao Kang is not defined. So it is for him to make of it what he wishes. Absolutely. Between Xiao Kang and Da Tong, we don't know what the path is. <laughs> and it's a, it's a very big gap. <laughs> it's a very big gap and it's probably a very long path. And it will be very interesting to watch Dr. Craig Smith and Dr. Matthew Galway. Thank you so much for talking to Ear to Asia. Thank you very much, Ali. Yeah, thank you. Our guests have been China historians Dr. Craig Smith from Asia Institute and Dr. Matthew Galway from the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 5th of February 2019. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.